0: Well, we're going through the book of Luke, and last week we jumped into the shorter version of the Beatitude Sermon that you can find in Matthew chapter 5. So turn with me to Luke 6, and let's read it again, beginning in verse 17. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples... And a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. Who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him. For power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the son of man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward in heaven is great. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full Now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now, last week I told you, you can look in the verses leading up to the passage I just read and see how Jesus, we're still on the front end of his ministry. This is just the second sermon that Luke chose to record. So this is early ministry. But crowds have already begun to arrive. And Jesus often would say things not to increase the number of people, but to thin it out. That's what, this is one of those sermons. Jesus wants to clarify What the kingdom of God is all about and how people in that kingdom live. And so that's why he chooses to speak to his disciples. You hear how the passage was worded? He's talking to his disciples, but he's doing it in front of a huge crowd because he wants the crowd to also know what the kingdom is actually about. And so this is a basic boot camp sermon, training sermon before he sends them out. But he's given them this training in front of crowds to know who he really is and what he really came to do. So what can we learn? What can we as kingdom people learn from this basic boot camp training? After a while, Christianity has been around for a while. You can get confused. You realize you can miss Jesus in the midst of church. You can be doing all kinds of things that you thought, that's what I thought it meant to be a Christian. Here's what it means to be a Christian. I don't do this and I don't do that and I... This is a great basic boot camp sermon for kingdom people to say, okay, am I in the kingdom or not? Am I really in the kingdom? Because he's saying, this is how kingdom people live. Not how they should live. It's how they live. So what can we learn? Well, number one, I told you last week, and I'll say it again. Jesus says that kingdom people prize what the world would despise. They prize what the world would despise. Listen to me. Surely you felt it as I read this. These verses are upside down to how the world thinks and how we naturally think as we come into this world as human beings. And that's why Christianity, listen to me, Christianity is far more than just adhering to a new set of doctrinal statements. It's far more than being baptized, sprinkled, or immersed. It's far more than going through catechism. And it is far more than just beginning to attend a church service on the weekend. You may do any and all of those things as a part of Christianity, but those things don't make you a Christian. You can get baptized and still be outside the kingdom. You can go through catechism, be outside the kingdom. You can do a lot of things that you think this is what Christianity is about and still be outside of the kingdom, which is why Jesus looked at Nicodemus. This is bonus. Happened in my basement yesterday, preaching aloud to the furniture. <laughs> That's why Jesus in John 3 3, you might want to write this down. John 3 3 looked at Nicodemus and said, Unless you are born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. Whoa. Never mind, get in it. You can't even see it. In other words, You'll be saying, kingdom what kingdom? All you'll know is right here, right now. What's happening in Washington? What's the United Nations doing? What about all the push and pull of power and struggle right now? All I know is right here, right now. Mm-hmm. Unless you're born again, you can't even see this other kingdom or be aware of it, let alone want to be in it. Which is, so Jesus is saying, becoming a Christian is like being born again because it ushers you into such a radical new way of seeing things you never saw before thinking in ways you never thought before and living in ways you never would have chosen to do on your own kingdom people it's radical it's upside down it's backwards to our human thinking I quoted it last week, but I want to say it again because it captures it so well. Michael Wilcox, in his commentary on this passage, passage says it this way. Quote, in the life of God's people, who's in the kingdom? In the life of God's people, there will be first of all a remarkable reversal of values. They will prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world thinks is desirable. Now, that's radical. It means the very things the world would say, Oh, Oh, I don't ever want any of that. We prize it. And the very things they say, go for that, go for that, go for that, go for that. We are suspicious. We're like, wait a minute. Don't hear me saying your flesh doesn't agree and say, yeah, but there ought to be this other power and this other voice saying, hang on, hang on, pump the brakes, be careful, be careful, be careful. You will suspect at times the very things the world says, that's it, that's it, go after it. You'll say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, let me help you if you're like, that never happens to me, not good. You're either not born again or your mind has not been renewed enough by God's word. This is how you start thinking radically different. His word renews your mind so that in those moments, as your flesh says, yes, your mind that's been renewed by his word says, no, no, hang on. Wait a minute. No, no, no. That's a lie. And to drive this home to us, Jesus declares four blessings and four woes. Last week, we looked at the blessings in verse 20 and 22. Today, I want us to look at the woes in verses 24 to 26, which leads to me to my second point. Number two, Jesus says it's a tragedy to build your life on the things of this world. Now, don't hear what he's not saying. He's not saying it's wrong. We're not supposed to stand on the top of a mountain and wear a bedsheet. Jesus is coming back. I shouldn't buy a house. I shouldn't get on a career path. I shouldn't marry anybody. I shouldn't have friends. I should. It's not what he's saying. Go ahead and get married if you choose to. Get a house. Get a job. But we don't build our lives around it as if this is all there is. We don't start living as if we are home. You don't let it just consume you and your best thoughts and energies. Oh, listen to me. The power of this earthly kingdom is all about the power of now. Now. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that? Our world is all about now. Not what has been. Who cares about history? Not what might be. But right now. Everything in our world pushes you and me to live as if right now is all that will ever matter. And if you buy into that, you'll make very different choices than when you understand what kingdom people should understand. And when you're thinking like Jesus is thinking and when you're seeing more, all of the right now for you is seen against a backdrop of one day, eternity, eternity. When your now is reframed by eternity, it changes how you live now, It changes what you think is most important now. It changes your ability to persevere now in the face of things not being all that you wish they were. But our world is all about now. What's happening to me now? What do I have now? How am I being treated now? That's all that matters. And so when you see Jesus using this word, whoa, four times, you might think that he's calling down a curse on them. Because in our minds... That would be the opposite of a blessing, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Cursed are those who live for riches now. That's not what he's doing. Because the Greek word for woe is a word of lamentation, not condemnation. It's a word of compassion and regret, not threat. So stay with me. Here's what Jesus is actually doing. Oh... Oh, it was a word in the Greek that meant to express horror when you see someone doing something dreadful and tragic. Oh, in other words, Jesus is saying, oh, I feel sorry for you if you're living for these things. And it matches exactly what you see with Jesus in the Gospels. Read the Gospels. Jesus does not judge and condemn Lost people. When Jesus released threats and judgment and condemnation, it was always towards self-righteous people who thought they were already good. Woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. You don't see Jesus railing against lost people and condemning them and judging them. So he wants the crowd to hear, oh, I feel sorry for you if you live If you get sucked into chasing after and because he you'll see it multiple times in the Gospels where Jesus would look out on the crowd and instead of saying, oh, you just make me sick. It would say, and he was moved with, say it, compassion because he saw how they were scattered like sheep without a shepherd. They just don't know. They don't know. And it breaks my heart to see them living this way. They don't know. They don't know. Oh, so what is it that Jesus actually calls dreadful and says, oh, that our world calls wonderful and wants you to chase after? Here's the first thing. He says, how dreadful to be living for the riches of this world. Dreadful. Look at it in verse 24. But. Oh, woe to you who are rich. For you've received your consolation. Now stay with me and don't make a mistake. Think, good, this whole first point has nothing to do with me because I'm not rich. Hope those rich people are listening. Two things I want you to understand. First, he's not condemning anyone that has a lot of money. There are godly, righteous people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that had money. He is condemning anyone who begins to live for it, make it their identity, and build their whole world around it. It's all about money. What money can buy me, the image money creates for me, and the doors that money opens for me. I live for money. That is the main thing. Money. And... News alert to some of you, if you've never left the shores of America and you don't read and you're not paying attention. You, if you're sitting in America, and if you've gotten confused, let me help you, you are. You're rich. You're rich. I don't even have to know you intimately to assume you have A.C. and heat pumping into wherever you're living. It's just a given. You have A.C. or heat pumping You probably have a smartphone. You have a large screen TV. If you're a family, you don't have one car. You have two. Duh. We have two cars. What a pain to have one car. We go different directions, do different things. And you don't ever wonder if you'll eat today. It's just what and where. Where are we going to eat? What are we going to eat? Where are we going to eat? What are we going to eat? I could go on. We have more conveniences and comforts and excess money. Stay with me. The ninety-eight percent of the world. Did you know that? You just you just forget because you're here. The ninety-eight percent of the world, chunk, huge chunks of the world still work all day long just to hope they can feed themselves and their families. So different than you. You say, but I hardly know how we're gonna make it. That was your choice. You have raised your standard of living to where it takes every penny, and then you're still in this stressful condition. That was your choice, to live where you live, drive what you drive, do what you do. not being harsh, you guys. I'm just being honest. He's talking to you and me, who are rich. So now here's the only question that matters. All right, Brad, how do I know if I'm just grateful for the riches of being in America or if I'm living for it? How do I know if I'm just grateful or I'm living for it? Let me help you. Here's the litmus test. How freely and how often do you give sacrificial amounts of money away to others? I'm not talking about rolling down your window on the exit ramp there and handing the guy with the cardboard sign a couple of bucks. That appeases your conscience. That costs you nothing. And here's how you can understand the word sacrificial. You're giving away an amount that changes what you can now do. Oh, we could do that, but we can't because we give. We might have been able to do that, but we can't. Because there are, You ought to be giving away money to the degree. What it, so it doesn't matter how much you make. It's what are you doing with it, and are you giving in away an amount that's sacrificial to where it changes what you can now do? And if you're saying, that's crazy, Brad, why would I do that? It's mine. Even notice that. It's mine. Oh, listen, kingdom people begin to understand I'm a steward. Everything I have, including the money, the gifts that but I worked hard, I'm sharp. I, I thought of this. I invented this. I, who gave you that brain? Who gave you that idea? Who gave you that work ethic? Don't hear me saying it doesn't matter. How, I've worked hard, too but oh my goodness, you better not lose sight of. It's a stewardship, it's a stewardship, it's a stewardship, it's a stewardship. And it's one, of the, it's one of the most radical signs and marks of a reversal in thinking. Let me help you here. To stop cussing is not that big of a deal. Keep cussing and give away lots of money. Take this dang money. That'll get more attention from the world. I'm telling you what, Oh, man, there's nothing that's more radical than giving away money, right? Because your flesh is like, oh, we might need that. We might need that. We just might need that. Radical reversal of values. And the more God blesses you, the more you have to lean in to keep living this way. Vicky and I, we know, I'm not complaining, but we know poverty, We know getting the government cheese. We know going to the government place to get shots for the kids because we had no health care. We know having one car, but it did only ran every other day. I'm not complaining. But we know that. And now we know abundance. I never knew if I would make this kind of income. The book that I wrote is not a million bestseller, but it's sold enough that the publisher sends me a check. I get money. Someone besides my mother bought that. I get money every year for that book as it sells. As I teach other places, they give me a love offering. Here's what you got to understand. As that, as my income has increased, it's not like, whoo, bigger house. Some of you, every time you get an increase, every time you get a bump, it's like we increase our our lifestyle. Bigger house, better cars. But the question is not what should we add to our lives, but what does God want us to do with this stewardship? It's a stewardship, and it's radical when the world sees you give it away. But there are times, even a blind squirrel can find a nut from time to time. There are times that unbelievers stumble into this because these truths work whether you're an unbeliever or not because we're created in the image of God. It's not like I became a Christian, now I'm in the image of God. You're born in the image of God, so there's certain things that are going to resonate even if you stumble into it. And every now and then, unbelievers stumble into some of the truth And joy and freedom of living this way. But it usually takes an accident, something tragic, a life-altering incident to shake them up and wake them up. You guys, kingdom people, it shouldn't take a life-altering accident or incident to shake us up and wake us up. If you're reading this It should be shaking you up and waking you up on a regular basis. I I don't know about you. I don't read this and say, yeah, that's exactly what I would have thought. No, first shall be last. Servant of all. The more you give, the more you get. What? Yeah. This will shake you up and wake you up. But let me give you an example. The horror novelist Stephen King. Maybe you know that name. Lots of bestsellers. They've been turned into movies. Stephen King, net worth $500 million. He's not usually associated with proclaiming biblical truth. But in a commencement address to a group of Vassar College graduates, he spoke biblical truth because he had just experienced a life altering accident where he was walking on the road near his home and got hit by a van. Someone wasn't paying attention, texting probably. And it nearly killed him. They, they almost had to amputate his leg. Life altering. Listen to what he said to the graduates. Quote, A couple of years ago when I was nearly killed by a van while walking near my home, I found out what you can't take it with you really means. And I found it out while I was lying in a ditch at the site. Su- the guy didn't stop. While I was lying in a ditch at the side of a country road covered with mud and blood and with the tibia of my right leg poking out of the side of my jeans. We all know that life is ephemeral. Short lived. I had to look it up. But on that particular day in the months that, and in the months that followed. He was in the critical care for a month. I got a painful but extremely valuable look at life's simple backstage truths. We come in naked and broke. And we may be dressed in our funeral when we go out, but we're just as broke. Warren Buffett, he's going out broke. Bill Gates, he's going out broke. Tom Hanks, he's going out broke. Stephen King, he's going out broke. All the money you earn, all the stocks you buy, all the mutual funds you trade, all of it is mostly smoke. And mirrors. Sooner or later things will begin to go wrong with the only three things you have that you can really call your own. Your body, your spirit, your mind. Now listen to what he says next. So I want you to consider making your life one long gift to others. And why not? All you have is on loan anyway. All that lasts is what you pass on. A life of giving, not just money, but time and spirit repays. It helps us remember that we may be going out broke, but right now we have the power to do great good for others. And if you're sitting there thinking, yay, Stephen King, you should give away a lot of money. You have 500 million. Then let me give you an example of someone right here in our own church family because I could stay, stand here all day and just give you story after story after story that makes me so proud of our church family. This is not what I'm about to read, an exception. It happens all the time. Because we've got kingdom people. We've got some kingdom people living the way he's called us to live. Here's what she says in her email that she sh- shot to me. A few years ago, someone in our church family sent us a check when we were deep in financial and business trouble. I was eight months pregnant, and we were so, so broke. We knew God was calling us to hang tight and stay with my husband's business, but neither of us had any clue how we were going to keep it up. One month, we just did not have the money to do it. We were $500 short when lo and behold, a card came in the mail from someone in our church family who said, we're praying for you. And in the card was a check for $500. That kept us afloat when it seemed like there was no way. God used someone in our church family to fulfill his purposes that we knew he had for us. We prayed, we trusted, God provided. Now let me insert here. When God wants to provide and answer the prayer of someone who's crying out for financial help, I hope you realize he rarely rips the roof off their house and drops a bag of money in the den. You're like, that is so cool. We just prayed. Look at what God did. Now, we're going to have to spend most of that to fix that, but no. No! Do you know what God does? you got to have kingdom people who are listening and living with margin in their life that they haven't already spent it all. And he prompts another believer to give, to help, to give. I give to unbelievers and believers. But you got to be living with margin and you got to be thinking kingdom. And you got to be listening, listening. He, I'm so encouraged by the number of times that, that we choose to give and, and we don't know. And someone says, oh, my goodness, you have no idea. Now, sometimes I give and I know. I know they have medical bills. I know they're unemployed and they have house payments. Sometimes I don't know. I just think, I think God wants us to give. And you cannot outgive God, you guys. Last year, all my ca- conferences were canceled. And since my conferences were canceled, then I wasn't talking about the book. And so that, you know, everything was just kind of down. But I'm still trying to give. And I really thought, I kept praying about it, that God wanted us to give. And it was a large amount to someone in our family who, who's struggling. Pulled the trigger, did it. I kid you not. This, this was just two weeks ago. I, I have this little U.S. bank app. I look at my app one morning. I'm like, there's this large amount of money, thousands of dollars in my. I'm like, Ooh. so I write my tax lady because I'd sent in my taxes to be done by her. I said, did you already send in my federal in Kentucky and this is a refund? She said, no, that's your stimulus. I had not been watching the news, so I'm not paying attention. I'm like, oh, my word. It was way more than what we gave away. This happens all the time, you guys. All the time. You can't, when God sees that everything he sends your way doesn't stay with you, he sends more your way. Because he's looking to get it into the hands and lives of other people that need it. You you will not lose, listen to me. But that doesn't mean that I don't have these moments where it's like, "Ah, ah, we were hoping to, we were gonna do such and such and we might need that. Will always be don't I hope you don't know. I hope you don't think, oh, I never think that. Yes, I have a sinful flesh too. It happens. I still have a couple more weddings to go. I got another daughter that's not married. So now I know what it costs. I've done two of those. If I'm not careful, I'm like, we need to save every cotton pick and penny and steal from some other people for this next wedding. Because <laughs> my word, it doesn't matter. You can say, oh, let's be real simple. Simple is still like. Minus the ice sculptures. It's still like, good grief. That's what you pay for a photographer? Flowers? I'm going to grab some out of somebody's yard. What are Are you kidding me? Why is this so expensive? Cupcakes? What is wrong with you? It's just, but you give, even though I have another girl's wedding to go. She says this. Oh, it gets better. Fast forward to today, five years later. My husband's business is finally starting to generate incredible income. And so now, because of what we learned from the teaching at Grace Fellowship and the example of other church families, we've been able to joyfully up our giving to Grace Fellowship, donate money to the COVID relief fund for families in our church that were hit hard by the pandemic, give away a car, help my little brother buy a car, and even employ some young men from the community to work in my husband's business But now I want you to listen to what she says next because it's very insightful. It has been such a joy to trust God with the increased income. Does that strike you as odd at all? We tend to think, whoo, when you don't have enough money, you got to trust God. When you do have lots, you don't need to trust God. You got money. I hope you realize one of the most dangerous positions to be in is not poverty, but having lots of money. You're like, well, make me dangerous, buddy. (laughs) Trust me, because this is when things can go off the rails. So notice, I love what she's saying. They knew, we better trust God with this as in, God, what do you want us to do? God, what do you want us to do? Not just assume, he wants us to get a bigger house. He wants us to get a Tesla. He wants us to, no, he probably doesn't, so God, what do you want me to do with this? I was so encouraged during the worst of the pandemic when we were shut down. I was trying to make phone calls two or three hours a week. I'm sorry if I didn't call you. Couldn't call everybody, but I was trying to call people. And I'll never forget this one conversation. Everybody was not doing terrible last year. Hope you realize. Certain businesses exploded because of the pandemic. And this one particular family, he's in IT and software, blah, 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 blah. And, and I'll never forget. She said, oh, Pastor Brad, We are making so much money that we've been crying out to God, saying, God, what do you want us to do with all this money? Because we know he doesn't want us to keep it all. Well, hallelujah. May more kingdom people think that way. It's not a question of how much you have. So don't put yourself in a category like, oh, I don't have anything to think about. It's what you're doing with what you have. Kingdom people handle money in a way that the world would say, that's crazy. That's crazy. That's crazy. But look what Jesus points out next. He says, oh, how dreadful to be living for the satisfaction and comforts of this world. Look at verse 25. Oh, woe to you who are full now. And that word for full in the Greek means to be filled up and totally satisfied. And it's not about more than food, you guys. It's talking about more than, it's talking about if Jesus is saying, if you think the things of this world will ever truly fill you up and satisfy you, you are going to end up so, so hungry and empty. He's saying, I feel sorry for you. I feel sorry for you. If you live thinking this, the things of this world will fill you up and satisfy you, you are going to be so, so hungry. C.S. Lewis, again, I figure if I keep quoting from this book, more of you might buy it and read it. C.S. Lewis in his great chapter on hope in his book, Mere Christianity, says this, quote, Most people, if they really learn how to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want And want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that the world offers that they say will give it to you. But they never keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love. Or first think of some foreign country. Or first take up some subject that excites us. Are longings which no marriage, no travel... No learning can really satisfy. And then this is what I love about C.S. Lewis. He's one of my favorite authors because so often when I read him, I'll say, oh, my goodness, I have felt that but didn't know how to put it into words. He puts into words things that I'm like, yes. So he anticipates what some of you are doing right now. Yeah, 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 yeah. But if I had a great marriage, it would satisfy. You're talking about bad ones. If I had one of those trips where every now and then, you know how a trip does go well. The luggage is not lost. You do not get the flu. You do not have, you know, just wretched diarrhea. It just goes well one time. So he knows what you're thinking. Listen to what he says next. He says, I am not speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriage or bad trips and so on. I am speaking of the best possible ones. There's always something we grasp at in that first moment of longing that just fades away in the reality. The spouse may be a good spouse. The scenery has been excellent. It's turned out to be a good job. But it, he puts it in quotations, has evaded us. Let me help you. The it that you're longing for will never be found in even a great marriage, a great trip overseas, a job that you're like, this resonates with my gifts. Yes. The it that you are longing for has to be found outside of this world in a God who broke into this world in his son Jesus Christ so that you could know him personally and intimately and be drinking. In a place that satisfies in a way that nothing in this world. Everything in this world, I hope you realize, leaks. The best marriage has a hole in the bottom of it. It leaks. The best job, the best church, the best whatever. There's this measure of, ah. Yeah. Nothing in this world was meant to fully satisfy you. That it can only be found in God through his son, Jesus Christ. Notice what else he says. Oh, how dreadful. Dreadful to be chasing after fame and popularity in this world. Oh, my goodness. Look at verse 26. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. In a way that I just, you know, I'm old enough now. In a way that I did not see growing up. Now, don't hear me saying we didn't have such sinful hearts. We did. There was just no way to try to fix this. The human heart longs to be known to be seen some of you young kids there was a day that the internet didn't exist i know gasp and you just lived in your little neighborhood and a few people there knew you and that's about it and you might have played t-ball and hit a home run once and like oh three parents think you're cool There was no social media where you can become sexy beast and no one knows you actually look pathetic. But that's your name and you can use somebody else's picture. And you're so good with social media that you've built a platform and you're being heard and you're being seen and you're getting followers and you're getting likes. That didn't used to exist. But listen, it hasn't helped. It hasn't helped. It's just fueled a fire that will not satisfy being noticed, having followers and even getting a measure of celebrity status in you're an average, normal person. I know the human heart might say, but, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm a nobody. I look at other people in my class at school and oh, she's got fourteen hundred. She's got forty three hundred followers. I have six hundred loser. If just I was a somebody that I would be so happy. It's a lie. You say, Brad, how do you know it's a lie? We know it's a lie, you guys, based on the chaos and misery of so many celebrities who have achieved what you think you want. And it's not the exception. It's the norm. Once you're famous, you're in rehab. I kid you not, right? Why? Why? Because it doesn't do for them what they thought it would do. Yeah, nothing in this world will. In a Village Voice newspaper column, that's a really hip, cool newspaper in New York City that would track with famous people, right? In a Village Voice newspaper column, Cynthia Himmel thought back on all the people she knew in New York City before they became famous movie stars. One worked at the makeup counter in Macy's. One worked selling tickets at a movie theater and so on. But she says when they became successful, every one of them became more angry, manic, unhappy, and unstable than they'd ever been when they were working hard to get to the top. Then I think it's so interesting. She uses the same word that Jesus uses to describe how she thinks about them. Listen to what she says. I pity Oh, how sad. How dreadful. I feel sorry for you. I pity celebrities. No, I really do. Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, and Barbara Streisand were once perfectly pleasant human beings. But now their wrath is awful. You see, Sly, Bruce, and Barbara wanted fame. They worked. They pushed. And the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing... They were striving for that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened. And they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. Listen to me, if you head down the path of fame and recognition, you will end up howling and insufferable, because some of the most miserable people are famous people who have what they thought would do for them, what it can not do. And so they're left saying, now what? Now what? Now what? And finally, Jesus said, how dreadful to be focused on the triumph and success Of this world. And if you're wondering what in the world I'm talking about on that one, look at the end of verse 25. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Now, right off the bat, it looks like he's saying, Oh, whoa, I feel sorry for you if you're happy and experiencing joy now. That's not what he's saying, because that's not what the Greek word means. I hope you realize Jesus is not a killjoy. He's not against happiness, He's not against joy. He's not a killjoy. He wants you to have real joy. So just like I said last week, I cry more now than I ever cried. Kingdom people cry easily. Guess what? Kingdom people also laugh easily. I have great joy. In fact, my joy is increased over the littlest things. Like right now, sitting on my patio, I brought out my birdhouse and stuck it on the top of the pole there. And it's a condo multiplex. There's four four units on that puppy. I got the roof painted red. It makes me so, now I got coffee, Bible, birds going at it, fighting and carrying on. I just got, it makes me so happy. Yesterday was beautiful. I sat out on the sun. Everything in this world, I'm so much more grateful. Just for a beautiful day, I'm like, God, thank you. A good meal, thank you. you kingdom people laugh easily, cry easily, and are so grateful for what used to you would say, well, duh, yeah, I mean, life's supposed to be that way. No. More and more you realize it's not Everything is a gift. Colors are more colorful to me now. Music is better. Food is better. Friendship is better. Everything gives me greater joy, not less. So he's not against joy. Here's what the word means. The word in the Greek actually means to gloat over someone and triumph over them in scorn, thinking you're superior. Think about how sometimes this word is used, right? Ha! Ha! I win, you lose. That is a laugh, but it's not joy here. It's mocking and scorning. Ha, I win, you lose. Think about it. Isn't that what we feel so often from unbelievers around us today? When you try to live the way Jesus has called you to live? We're like, you're a loser. You're an idiot. When you try to put into practice weakness, meekness, turning the other cheek, Denying yourself, forgiving others, overcoming evil with good. They're just like, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. They'll scorn you. They'll mock you. They'll think we're crazy. Some psychologists and psychiatrists. I mean, this is so radical to the human heart and mind. Some psychologists and psychiatrists even point to the Beatitudes as proof That Jesus was mentally unstable and unbalanced. Yeah, listen to this. One British psychologist in a speech that he delivered before the Royal Society of Medicine. Here's a speech he's given. Said this, and I quote. The spirit of self-sacrifice which permeates Christianity and is so highly prized. Notice we prize what they despise. And is so highly prized in the Christian religious life is masochism, moderately indulged. A much stronger expression of it is to be found in Christ's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. This sermon blesses the poor, the meek, the persecuted, exhorts us not to resist evil, but to offer the second cheek and to do good to them that hate you and forgive them. Listen to how he concludes. All of this breathes masochism. Isn't that interesting? You understand what he's saying? He's saying, you can't possibly be sane and normal. If you do the things Jesus has called you to do, you must actually like being miserable and humiliated. Kingdom people live with a remarkable reversal of values. We see it differently. We think differently. And we live differently. Differently, because this is not our home and we're following King Jesus who lived this way when he was here. Oh, listen to me. They may be laughing at us now and gloating over us now. But God right now sits on his throne and he laughs now and he will laugh last. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Turn to Psalm chapter two. One of my favorite, favorite psalms. Because you're going to see this word laugh, and it's not in the context of ha, 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 funny, hilarious. It's, again, in the context of mocking and scorning. But we got God laughing at them. Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, beginning of verse 1. Why, this is God talking. Why do the nations rage? We got a lot of raging today, right? Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Who is his anointed? Say louder, "Jesus, they're against him. They're against this kingdom." they're like, "Ah, oh, goodness, righteousness! Ah! Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens, say it, laughs. This is God, God the Father. The Lord holds them in derision. I had to look it up. That means to mock and scorn them. Is that understanding? So God mocks them and scorns them and says, Ha, we win, I win. You lose. What you don't realize, you think you're winning. You are not. I am still on my throne. I'm still accomplishing my purposes. I'm still building my church. And my son is coming back. And everything I've promised is going to happen. Ha! That makes me feel better. I don't know about you. Like every year I read through my Bible. And when I get to this, I'm like, yes! Right? Now be careful. This is another one of those examples where the Bible says... God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He'll do the mocking and the scorning right now. That's not us. Don't get on social media and in a real conversation, don't be mocking and scorning. You overcome evil with good. You turn the other cheek. You forgive because God will take care of all that. All that, all that. Oh, pick it up again. Verse five, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them. In his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion. Who's the king? Say it louder. Jesus. Jesus. I will tell of the decree. Now, Jesus starts to speak. The Lord, God the Father, said to me, You are my son. Today I've begotten you ask of me and I will give, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. God the Father has already given the nations to His Son. What that means is, there are going to be people who will come to faith in Christ from every tribe and tongue and nation. It cannot be stopped. If you go out, as we send our missionaries, it's not will anyone come, it's just who from that nation will come. Because God the Father has already given all the nations to his son. Islam is not going to win. Atheism is is not going to win. Christianity wins. Jesus said, I'll build my church and he's doing it now. He's doing it now. He's doing it now. Look at verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, Be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I hope you hear two things going on in this chapter that are absolutely true right now. If you're an unbeliever, thank you for attending or listening online. But I plead with you, come to Christ, because right now, today, it's whosoever will may come. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and you can find refuge in him. Be forgiven, be made new. But this same Jesus, you can either find him as your refuge now and kiss the son or he's coming back as your judge judge when he splits the sky from the east to the west and returns it will be as king jesus not baby humble jesus and he will be coming to judge the nations and it will be too late and christians take heart take heart They may be saying, ha, we win. Don't you see what's going on? Things are getting worse and worse and worse. Statistics are showing fewer and fewer people are interested in this, which is a lie. Even in our own church family, I'm so encouraged. I've been here 25 years. We are not graying out. Have you noticed that? It's not like the only people that care about this are old. We keep having high school students from Ryle and Dixie. We keep having young people in their 20s with little backpacks and looking cooler than I am. They keep coming Because the human heart hasn't changed. The worse the world gets, the more people know there's got to be more. There's got to be more. There's got to be more. And God is building his church and expanding his kingdom. Take heart. We get to be his people for such a time as this. Because He's given us new eyes. They can't see what we see. They have no ability to see the kingdom. And they refuse to recognize just how precarious and fragile this earthly kingdom is. Oh, God wants to use us. God wants to use us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. And thank you for what you are doing in our nation and in our World, Thank you that 2020 didn't set you back and send you to a new plan, that you're accomplishing the same original plan. Use us as your people. Oh, Lord, renew us that we might, that we might embrace and prize a remarkable reversal of values that would cause the world regularly to say, why, why do you do that? Why'd you do that for them? Why'd you do that for me? And then we won't, we won't say, oh, because I, I, I'm so great. I'm just a great guy. We'll be able to talk about you and what you've done for us and how you've solved our biggest problem. Oh, God, help us to live loose to the things of this world so that we can live for what matters most. It is a joy to be your kingdom people today.